Hello, and welcome to the December 2023 Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Rich Branson, Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. Thank you for joining us for our final podcast of this year. This month's Editor's Choice is a retrospective study by Jimenez and others evaluating the impact of non-invasive ventilation on transcutaneous carbon dioxide in subjects treated for chronic hypercapnia. In a group of 337 subjects, probability of survival was improved when transcutaneous CO2 was less than 50 millimeters of mercury after 90 days of treatment. The authors concluded that reducing transcutaneous PCO2 from baseline in subjects with chronic hypercapnia using NIV was associated with improved survival and NIV strategies should target the greatest possible reductions in transcutaneous PCO2. This is an important issue here because we're looking at transcutaneous PCO2, not PACO2. Locke and Brown provide an accompanying editorial. They note that this retrospective trial cannot infer causality. It is possible that the inability to reduce transcutaneous PCO2 is an indicator of mortality risk versus its cause. They argue for prospective studies to make this determination. I think this is an important point when considering the importance of this trial and what it means to clinical care. Rogerson et al. performed a retrospective analysis of data from 157 institutions via the Virtual Pediatric Systems Database to predict the duration of mechanical ventilation. Data over a decade evaluated subjects requiring mechanical ventilation for greater than 24 hours. They found observed to expected ratios were close to one. However, there were large observed to expected differences between institutions. They concluded that the model developed might be beneficial in benchmarking and quality improvement initiatives in individual facilities, especially those that were not up to par. Dalaba and Ajabrawi provide commentary. They suggest that the results can best be used to help identify facilities with low observed to expected ratios investigate best practices, and track performance over time. Wise and colleagues describe an educational initiative using training dolls to enhance caregiver education of children with tracheostomy. Caregivers received a training doll to practice tracheostomy placement skills or standard education. Two questionnaires were used to evaluate the utility of the training dolls, skills practiced, and caregiver confidence in related skills. Caregivers who received a training doll felt training was helpful for practicing skills and demonstrated improved confidence in those skills, including changing the tube, providing manual ventilation. Use of the training doll did not impact hospital length of stay or time to complete training. I think this is an important issue related to this study in that because you add the training doll, that doesn't force the family to keep the patient in the hospital longer. Nickel and colleagues concur with these findings, but call for further research to focus on the impact of training on quality of home care, sustainability of skills over time, an impact on healthcare utilization. Xander et al. report the results of a bench study comparing proximal airway pressures to tracheal pressures during pressure control ventilation. During testing, compliance was varied between a 10 and 100 milliliters per centimeter of water pressure and a list of variable IE ratios. They found differences between proximal and tracheal pressures as much as eight centimeters of water pressure. This isn't new and isn't surprising, but they suggest a small pressure sensor at the tip of the endotracheal tube could be an alternative pressure monitoring site for ventilator control. This has been suggested before, and at least in the past, with the technology at the time, the effects of secretions and moisture over time limited the ability to use this site. Furlong Dillard and others retrospectively reviewed the incidence and severity of oxygen desaturations during intubation 
of children on non-invasive respiratory support. They evaluated oral intubations over an 18-month time frame, defining desaturation events based on the SpO2 value. Subjects were stratified based on pre-intubation respiratory support, including oxygen via nasal cannula at standard flows, high-flow nasal cannula, and very high-flow nasal cannula, defined as greater than 2 liters per kilogram per minute, as well as NIV. They reported severe desaturation events in 12% of subjects. Factors associated with desaturation events included FiO2 greater than 60 and duration of support before intubation. NIV was also independently associated with severe desaturation. Alnazi and Lee conducted a bench study of five different high-flow nasal cannulas on transnasal aerosol delivery. Each device was set at flows from 10 to 60 liters per minute. Salbutamol was placed in the nebulizer and a filter was used to collect aerosol delivery and measured using spectrophotometry. Different high-flow nasal cannula devices performed similarly with few differences except the Vapotherm device consistently delivered the lowest dose. Um, there are multiple factors that impact this, but one of them is narrowing the nasal cannula at the interface. As this increases the velocity, it also decreases the surface area, so more aerosol is, is dropped out of the system. They conclude that HFNC devices and increasing flows impacted aerosol delivery. Smith et al. evaluated pulmonary function and incremental cardiopulmonary exercise testing in subjects with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Cardiopulmonary exercise testing included measurements of lung volume, the Borg score, and leg discomfort scores. Subjects with severe diffusion limitation, DLCO less than 40%, demonstrated more severe restrictive disease, lower peak work rate, and reaching the anaerobic threshold at an earlier time point. They concluded that severely reduced DLCO in, in interstitial lung diseases was associated with greater cardiovascular impairment, greater dyspnea, and more leg discomfort. They suggest these subjects might represent patients who might benefit from pharmacologic intervention. Nagumo and colleagues conducted an open-label randomized controlled trial of the impact of airflow directed at the face with a fan in subjects with dyspnea associated with chronic respiratory disease. We've seen this in, in the hospital many times where patients appear to be more comfortable if they have airflow to their face. They measured dyspnea using a visual analog scale and physical activity level. There were no differences in measured variables between the groups after three weeks of study at home. Roldan et al. performed a single-center observational study of 166 subjects with COVID-19 and ARDS. They set out to determine the prognostic performance of the oxygenation stretch index, that's oxygenation plus the driving pressure, on 60-day mortality. Prognostic factors were evaluated through receiver operating characteristic analysis, Cox proportional hazards regression model, and Kaplan-Meier survival curves. Oxygenation, driving pressure, and composite variables were tested. The oxygenation stretch index, which was PO2-FiO2 ratio divided by driving pressure and driving pressure times four plus the breathing frequency. At both day one and day two after inclusion, the oxygenation stress index had the best area under the ROC curve. They suggested that the oxygenation stretch index might be useful in predicting outcomes in patients with COVID-19 and ARDS. Burgess and co-workers performed a bench study of noise produced by neonatal ventilators inside and outside of incubators using a range of respiratory support modalities. They studied nine neonatal ventilators in invasive ventilation, high-frequency oscillation, non-invasive ventilation, and CPAP. Sound measurements were performed inside and outside an incubator, mimicking the clinical setting. Invasive ventilation was the quietest technique and high-frequency oscillation the loudest. 
they concluded that modern ventilators produce clinically relevant noise independent of the respiratory support modality, with acceptable noise levels being measured only outside the incubator. Wolstein and others contribute a short report on the implementation of a tracheostomy airway safety placard placed at the bedside of tracheostomized children. Placards emphasize critical airway anomalies as well as emergency management algorithms were placed at the head of the bed and remained with the patient during transport. A survey was conducted pre and post implementation. They received a response rate of 44%. Following placard use, there was an in, were increases in the domains of confidence. Less experienced providers demonstrated improved confidence post implementation. Farazadel contributed a narrative review on physiologic markers of disease severity and ARDS. This review describes the strength and limitations of relevant parameters with the goal of better understanding disease severity and future treatment targets. Zhang and others provide a systematic review of the risk of fracture and osteoporosis in COPD subjects using inhaled corticosteroids. Their analysis does not support a connection between steroid use and fractures. Karsten Roberts contributes the final year in review on ventilator liberation. Um, this is a precursor to the clinical practice guideline being developed on the same topic. Morris and co-workers provide a review of phrenic nerve stimulation for acute respiratory failure as part of the New Horizon Symposium. This is a really important paper and I think is going to be part of the future of mechanical ventilation. Damiani and colleagues provide the final New Horizons paper on the importance of mechanical power during mechanical ventilation. A special article on eccentric contractions of the diaphragm during mechanical ventilation by Garcia et al delves into the relationship between asynchrony, patient breathing effort, and diaphragmatic dysfunction. Our symposium, Research and Restoric Care, continues with papers on how to write the methods section of a research manuscript by Denise Willis and how to write an effective discussion by Dean Hess. We appreciate your attention to the Restoric Care Editor's commentary, the journal, and we look forward to your submissions. Thank you. Have a happy holiday. Thank you.